welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who thinks they'd have a pretty decent shot at using Red Triangle Protocol to resist a Professor X psychic probe. It is time to receive your 47th Weird Dose of X. We are, of course, the mutant member of the Weird Science family. Uh, my name is Jason, and with me, as always, is Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? I'm doing pretty good. The summer has finally arrived in Seattle, even nice. though it's not quite summer yet, but we went from six months of no weather, or I guess no temperature above 70 degrees, to uh, last week being five days of sun, and this next week being another five days of sun, so it's quite lovely. I suppose this that's is the one time of, of the year. enjoy it while you got it kind of things there, huh? Yeah, yeah. We're very manic up here. Um, there's something called seasonal affectional disorder where people get super depressed <laughs> from lack of sunlight. And so this is sort of the flip side. We're all going to be jacked up on UV rays and happiness for the next three to four months. And probably caffeine, too. A little bit of that. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my stereotype from the entire Pacific Northwest <laughs> is that you're always walking around with like black coffee in, in each hand, just constantly knocking yeah. back coffee. Yeah, I wish I could say that's not true, but I'm holding a <laughs> coffee in my hand right this second. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, well, it, this was, uh, as we record, just right after Mother's Day, and I hope all our all the mothers in our listening audience, I don't know that's our main demographic, but I'm sure there are some, hope you all had a, a wonderful Mother's Day. Uh, and yeah, I guess we will dedicate this episode of Weird Dose of X to all you mothers out there. How about that? Sounds good. I'm sure it's the present they all were hoping to receive. So yes. we have uh, actually five books to talk about today. Three of them we're going to do real quick. Those are Iron Man number six, Rogue and Gambit number three, and Captain Marvel number whatever the heck it is. It's the next last Captain Marvel. Then we'll spend a little more time on Wolverine number 33 and X-Men Red number 11. But first, two quick news items. Uh, number one is that Marvel has announced a new Jean Grey miniseries be written by Louise Simonson with art by Bernard Chang. Now, Louise Simonson is, of course, a legend in X-Men comics, having written a ton of New Mutants, a bunch of X-Factor, edited a bunch of the Claremont run on Uncanny, co-created a character you might have heard of called Apocalypse, and another one called Cable. Uh, so, uh, Ruben, are you a, a Louise Simonson fan at all? You know, I've never heard that name, um, but I am now. Those are a lot of important things that occurred so yeah. yeah she was around for a long time done a bunch of stuff uh in the fandom some people call her wheezy i don't i've never met the woman so i don't feel close enough to give her a nickname but uh yeah check out louise simonson uh now yeah, I, I, I think editors don't get enough recognition i'm certainly guilty of that but i've noticed that you know even certain writers oscillate and how good they are depending on who the editor was at the time. She is married to Walt Simonson, which, you know, that's not her only credential, but if you recognize the name Simonson, that may be, that's a connection uh, to make there. Uh, now, at first, I thought this was going to be another one of those flashback X books like Claremont on Gambit, but Marvel is selling this as being fully part of the Fall of X. We're told <laughs> that after the events of the Hellfire Gala, all about the Hellfire Gala, Jean will have to save herself from something. Now, here's a quote from Marvel. That means looking into her past for the moment when it all went wrong in a desperate attempt to save her and all Krakoa's future. So exactly how much this is a, a relevant to now story versus a revisit the past story with a little bit of a tie-in, it's, it's hard to tell. But Ruben, you and I will at least check out the first issue uh, when it releases at the end of August. And as always, we'll decide whether or not to stick with it after that. So... By then, I'm sure you will know all about 
Louise Wheezy Simonson. I'm going to make a wild speculation that she thinks about when she was transformed into the Phoenix. Oh. Because <laughs> that seems to be the only That's what plot they go back point to. Yeah. they have whenever you have Jean Grey thinking about, you know, the important things in her life. Yeah, I, I wish I could say I thought you were Phoenix wrong, story. but I do not. <laughs> Okay, one more tiny bit of news. If you uh, didn't pick up a copy of that free comic book day issue that Ruben and I discussed last week, Marvel has put it up on their Unlimited app already. I don't think you even need a paid subscription to read that issue. So if it sounded cool, download the app and check out that issue. Okay, on to some books from this past week. We're going to start off with Ruben taking the lead on an Iron Minute, talking about Invincible Iron Man number six, written by Jerry Duggan, Guest art by Andrea DeVito, colors by Brian Valenza, and letters by Joe Caramagna. So, Ruben, what do X readers need to know about this issue? Um, nothing. <laughs> Moving on, Rogue it Gambit. Is so, oh, okay, it is so more. bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I shouldn't say so bad, but my sense on this is this is for some deep cut Tony Stark fans. I am not one of those, so the point of this really went over my head. But the the plot point is we've got tony he's back in his new jersey secret workshop where he's hanging out now and he's thinking about the first time he interacted with emma frost or something like that um so we get like a you know a montage of him fighting the west coast avengers in some training mission yeah this book is like 95 percent flashback yeah so we get this I'm, I'm assuming this happened in either west coast or in some old iron man issue but he's in the um silver centurion armor um gets into a big fight talks to somebody about uh somebody from the military about mind control and they tell him hey we need you to take this anti-mind control technology and deliver it to uh nick fury and so he goes and does that or tries to do that um meets with nick fury on some skyscraper but realizes that it's emma not nick and then it's like hey the gig is up and then she um i think they're they're standing on top of the is it the nowhere bar it's or the, like the that. bar with no name for all the marvel yeah marvel villains mostly spidey villains tend to hang out there yeah and then she she mind controls all of them to come and fight him and get the technology and they break him his helmet which allows her to use her mind powers to i guess force him to give the anti-mind control technology to emma and then he talks about how that was the first time he realized not to underestimate emma frost which i don't exactly know why and then there's this sort of this is where i feel like this is for deep cut iron man fans because they show him realizing that emma frost was hazel kendall and that name means nothing to me or if that was even a mystery <laughs> so yeah that makes no sense. And then War Machine shows up, interrupts his kind of flashback memory. Right, back, like, back hey, in the current day, War Machine shows up, interrupts Tony's writing. Yeah, and says, hey, we're going to go do something that'll make us criminals by you know destroying the factory that's making the Iron Man Sentinels. Yeah, and the that's issuance. the only like possibly relevant part is that uh, War Machine stole some sort of technology, presumably from Stark Unlimited, a uh, big old laser rifle looking thing. And Tony and uh, War Machine are going to go use that to, you know, bust up the company. I do have some Hazel Kendall deep cut yes, information. For great, you. because I was like, tell mm -hmm. me who this is, now, right? It, I, it I don't whole think panel, and I'm like, okay. Emma has used reveal. this alias before. I think this is. I think this is being invented right now. I know it's it's set in the past, but I think this issue is the first time that alias appears. Although it it seems it is, you know, really really pushed, but. 
Emma's mother was named Hazelfrost. So I think that's where the first name comes from. Mm -hmm. And Emma had a high school teacher named Ian Kendall. So Hazel and Kendall. Now, Ian Kendall uh, was a high school teacher that appears in the 2003 Emma Frost miniseries by a writer named Carl Bollers. Bowlers? I don't know. I, I've heard of uh, Louise Simons, and I haven't heard of Carl Bowlers. Sorry, uh, any Carl Bowlers fans out there. But Ian Kendall is a teacher that was Emma's first crush. And I don't know the details, but apparently she was seen smooching this teacher and got him fired. Interesting. Oh, well. So, again, I don't know if this is going to come up again. But, yeah, it is. If it's only a throwaway line, it is very prominent. It's bizarre. And the other thing that's really bizarre to me is the very end of this fight is her basically forcing him to forget that this yes. happens, right? Uh -huh. And so I'm like, uh -huh. how, how is he <laughs> remembering this fight if that happened, right? It, I have that in my notes as well. Yeah. Did, okay, did, great. Did the, did the mind whammy wear off sometime over all those years? Yeah, who, who I don't know. It's but, super weird. <laughs> it, it's weird because there's a panel saying, yes, he had to, I mean, Emma giving the mind whammy, making him forget all about this. And the next page is him writing his book all about Emma giving him the mind whammy. So there's, there's a question there. So, yeah, I felt I, a little cheated. Uh, you know, I guess I'm going to be rating this. I'll just say for me, it's just a six out of 10. And I felt like it's kind of a wasted issue, but I thought I'll keep it was it. fun enough. Uh, it's not at all relevant to X fans. So if you were only going to get this to know what's up with, with Emma and things going on on Krakoa, you don't need to. As a flashback to see some good old old school Iron Man fights, uh, we see villains like Stilt Man and the Rhino and Hydro Man. Uh, also, Turk Barrett, who I didn't know about. He was a character who kind of showed up there briefly. He seems like he might be kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, it was some, I like that the cover has some very 80s looking fake trade dress on it. Oh, it's, it's a fun issue, but not super relevant for X stuff. I'd probably give it a, like a seven out of 10. I had a good enough time. I also groaned with the other throwaway line where he says, you know, he's fought the Hulk several times and the Rhino only once and that getting hit by the Rhino was more painful. I'm like, BS. <laughs> I don't buy that for one second. Yeah, I, that doesn't seem quite right. Okay, now really moving on to Rogan Gambit number three, Broken Promises and Broken Bones. Written by Stephanie Phillips, Jim's favorite. Art by Carlos Gomez. Colors by David Curiel. Letters by Ariana Mayer, who I'm pretty sure has, has blocked everyone. Uh, and designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Not a great book. Uh, the only item of interest I think of this issue is kind of neat. They make direct reference to that living suit that Forge made using DNA from Caliban and Mystique. That was in X-Men's number 16 and 17 of the current Duggan written volume. Forge claims that he destroyed both the suit and the research used to create it. But Gambit does a whole thing where there's explosions, because it's Gambit. Uh, and Gambit finds some kind of a silver disc. I don't know if this is like a data disc of the research or what. But somehow, and I, I, I don't follow this at all, uh, Ford, or not Rogue, Gambit gives this disc to Rogue, and Rogue now seems to have Caliban's mutant power, which is to track down like mutants by location, and she uses that power to track down Manifold, who they're looking for. And when she gets to that location, she finds a bunch of kidnapped bad guys being, wait for it, mind-controlled by their captors. <laughs> awful, awful similar to what we were just talking about in yes. Iron Man. Yes. It, it mostly includes different villains, except Electro. Electro is mind controlled in this issue and in Iron Man the same week. Poor son of a gun. 
Uh, oh, and when Rogue yanks the control chip out of the neck of one of those baddies, a, a D-lister called Vanisher. She kills Vanisher. Yep. I've never heard of Vanisher. R.I.P. Vanisher. He, he, he at least <laughs> looks like he's about to drop dead. Yes. Yeah. The idea is that it kills them to take control chip out. Given that Manifold also has one of these chips in his neck, this rescue is going to be a little problematic. I also see Juggernaut there as one of the mind-controlled villains, and I was like, wait, what? Continuity-wise, that's an interesting choice, isn't it? <laughs> because he's doing his thing in, in Legion of X and all that, all the uh, Nightcrawler stuff. Yeah. So we, we do know that the X-Men treehouse exists in this issue. We can see it in the background. So this story takes place in a pretty tight time frame. Sometime after the Forge rescues Laura from the vault, because the Caliban suit exists, but before the night of the Hellfire Gala, when the treehouse burns down. Unless, I don't know, the treehouse gets rebuilt, but let's let's say it's in that era. Well, so yeah, this, not a great book. I don't recommend it. The art is kind of lower tier for Marvel. Story. I, I still like that. the art. Okay. The, the, I like the art. It's kind of style. It's very stylized. I hate the story. The character... It feels like total character assassination stuff, and then, again, just making Gambit a total dope. Yeah, at least at one point here, he was acting like a dope on purpose to do something smart, kind of, yeah. except that he might have blown up and killed them all, but it worked out. And then he just decides, I'm going to go my own separate ways because we're having marital problems, which is weird. And then we get a splash, uh, what, uh, what are these called? These detail pages of- Data pages. Data page, thank you, of Rogue talking about her marital problems with rocket raccoon and him giving like sage she, advice we've seen the t- like text screens like texting phone screens in this yeah. series before that's kind of what they're doing it just it, a lot of it is it's just like the characterization is weird maybe rocket is is deeper but i look at this and i'm like are you really talking to rocket or somebody else on the other end of this <laughs> cell phone right because yeah, it just it, doesn't it seem like, like the way LOL he would talk random getting marital advice from a raccoon haha isn't that funny on twitter kind of a thing yeah yeah oh, it's well. just weird so yeah four out of ten uh if you want to see things that definitely are happening during this era of krakoa this is definitely happening during that era it's just yeah. not that great yeah okay moving on to captain marvel number 49 i did write it down in this section of my notes uh this is the penultimate issue of kelly thompson's run this volume of Captain Marvel is going to end next month in, well, Captain Marvel number 50. This has been that whole brood storyline. It was supposed to be this brood stuff going on in X-Men, brood stuff going on in Captain Marvel, and then this issue was the crossover to tie it all together. So Captain Marvel's now separated identity of binary, some kind of energy being, got killed last issue. And so Carol got so upset that she nearly went supernova and killed herself and her whole team. Almost. But then Rogue, hey, we heard about her in the last book, so again, the timing here is kind of up in the air. Rogue goes and absorbs part of Carol's power, which is, of course, a callback to, you know, the classic Rogue and Captain Marvel story from the 80s, 90s, 80s, whenever it was. Uh, And I guess also absorbed part of Carol's, like, emotional pain, so Carol didn't explode after all. (laughs) <laughs> so while they bond over their shared pain, the brood empress, who was like the big baddie in this whole series, just kind of dies in the background. <laughs> I don't know how or why. It's like maybe some of this boiling over, almost going supernova just went her way. Cooked her a bit. Yeah. yeah it's really the, 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 the lady is hugging and crying in the foreground. And oh, by the way, the villain dies. That's very secondary. I think the, the brood empress may have died of cringe. I've, I've heard that can happen. So. This is technically a crossover in that some X-Men characters who kind of 
left that last X-Men book to arrive here. Uh, they don't really do anything, though. You see them kind of fighting random brood in the background, but nothing at all necessary to the plot. They didn't need to be here. Rogue is the only X-Men character that actually has plot-relevant actions. Uh, and once again, the events of this book don't look like they are going to have any effect on anything happening on Krakoa. So all you completist X-readers, you don't need to feel like you got to go out and get this issue. It It's not going to matter on Krakoa. But, however, if you've been enjoying Kelly Thompson's run Captain Marvel, you know, this is a big issue in that whole saga. So you folks will probably like this issue, you know, just fine. I Not really my thing. I think the art was okay. I'd give it like a plain old five out of ten. Okay, those were our short takes. Now on to our, the first of our two main books in this episode. This is Wolverine number 33, Weapons, plural, of X, part three. Written by, of course, Ben Percy. Art by Juan Jose Rip. Colors by Frank Darmada. Letters by Corey Pettit. Designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Uh, now, this is another quick reading, action-packed issue. Uh, there's, there's a couple issues here to discuss, but first, Ruben, what did you think of this issue of Wolverine? Any issue of Wolverine without a ton of Wolverine is going to be higher up my score, but actually, I enjoyed it. It was um, sort of like a popcorn flick, right? Like, this is not high art, this is not deep storytelling, but the art's pretty good, and uh, the scenarios are kind of just, for me, fun. So, I didn't it didn't do anything that annoyed me. It didn't do anything that I thought, you know, anyone needs to know about, but I enjoyed reading it. It does feel like it sh- kind of should be an X-Force issue, not a Wolverine issue, though, right? In that all, all of the Beast-focused stuff, it, I guess he's writing both books and he has other things he needs to do in X-Force, so he's putting this story over here in Wolverine. Yeah, I mean, this is unapologetically like a double story right like i can't imagine only reading wolverine and be like what the hell's going on or you know reading x-force without reading these developments yeah that that's true i mean i know there are you know fans out there who are really just like only about wolverine that is what they've always loved that's what they collect and if all you're reading is wolverine you go from the last volume of wolverine to this volume of wolverine it's going to be hard to really understand what is going on so this story picks up right where we left off last issue. Beast has run away from Krakoa with a bunch of Beast and Wolverine clones, traveling the oceans of the world in a giant skull-headed Krakoan kaiju. He claims he's still working on behalf of Krakoa's interests, even if the stupid Quiet Council isn't going to admit what those interests are. Now, on their last mission, uh, you know, blowing up a sub, because that seems to be mostly what he does is blowing up subs, one of the Wolverines got left behind. Beast thinks it's just a, a stray corpse. But he doesn't want any evidence lying around. He's he's trying to be super covert here, which is why he's traveling the oceans of the world in a giant skull-headed Krakoan kaiju. Uh, <laughs> we know, be- because we read the last issue, that the cloned Wolverine was picked up by Maverick, who was in the submarine, after those Wolverines blew up the submarine and killed all his mercenary friends. Now, this cloned Wolverine seems to go back and forth between being alive and dead based on the necessities of the plot. So, that's one thing we're going to talk about is what actually is the deal with these Wolverine clones. But first, Prime Beast wants to send out a team of Wolverines to reclaim the body of their fallen twin brother. Unusually, though, Prime Beast wants one of these subordinate beasts to be part of the away team. I guess with the Wolverines having made kind of a mess of this the first time around, he thinks they need some more leadership. Yep. Now, all of the beasts are walking around in nothing more than compression shorts. I, I guess it's always casual Friday on the good ship Kaiju. 
You can tell <laughs> Prime Beast from the others because he has more hair. He's got that pointy, almost Wolverine-style hair. And yeah. also, Prime Beast doesn't wear glasses. I thought this was a fun little detail. We learn later that Beast has genetically removed nearsightedness from himself, but intentionally left it in his subordinate clones just to kind of remind them of their place in the world. So I thought that was funny. Did you like yeah, that one too? I did too. I did think that was hilarious. Good stuff. And, and it, it it's a part of Beast's petty, petty dictator uh, yes. characterization that yes. you know, maybe it's not my favorite characterization, but to have that little detail in there. It, it, it is fun. So this advances a plot thread where Prime Beast is continuing to pull rank on these subordinate beasts, and they're starting to resent him a little for it. All beasts are equal, but one beast is more equal than the others. Uh, once again, a whole lot like what happened in the Sinisterized Quiet Council in Sins of Sinister. Okay, so now let's let's talk about these cloned Wolverines. They seem kind of nerfed, right? I'm used to Wolverine being able to kill damn near anybody. <laughs> you generate from like a drop of blood and a you know bit of spit. And yeah. so do these clones have a full Wolverine healing factor? What what's the deal? I mean what's what are your thoughts? Yeah. Here? I mean I was kind of wondering about do they have adamantium skeletons? Because they infiltrate the submarine, right? Looking for the corpse wolverine. And Maverick shows like sneaks back in, right? And then he like takes them out, you know, predator style, just you know, single elimination. And I'm like, what are you using to like blow them up, cut them in half. Like, I always thought, you know, they were pretty durable. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of seem like, you know, your regular, you know, villain goons. Yeah. Maybe he only has enough adamantium for the claws. The claws look shiny. They don't look like bone claws. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a part in a, a scene or two where one of them kind of cuts at some prison bars with the claws, and the bars just kind of scratch a little. So either yeah. the prison bars are made of adamantium or the claws aren't. Right, right? Yeah. There's only yeah. options. It's weird. It's really weird. Um, but yeah, they don't seem to be so formidable. I mean, I know Maverick is tough, but tough enough to take on an army of Wolverines. That's sort of, mm -hmm. you know, plot armor right there. I don't imagine he's that tough all the time, but for the story, he is. Yeah. Now, we are told that Beast has kind of halted their mental development the same way he did with the real Logan issues 27, 28, and 29. Yeah, But that's just a vine around their neck. And in those yeah. issues, Wolverine could just get that vine sliced off, and then he was full, you know, complete, 100% Wolverine. Yeah. So do these clones have that same capability? If you, you cut off the vine on one of them, would we have two Logan Wolverines, like we have two Laura Wolverines? That's what I'm telling you. There's going to be Wolverines for days. We could, <laughs> we could have, you know, cut off all the vines and have dozens of complete Logan Wolverine's running around, which yeah, that'd be weird. Uh, so the Beast clone, who's now the head of this away mission, and his team of Wolverine clones head out on a really cool-looking aquatic shuttlecraft. I think that the Krakoan Beast tech in this series is really the high point of the art. It looks awesome and also gross at the same time. It looks kind of like it's got some bubbles on it, like you know, the a lot of Krakoan stuff has those gold spherical parts to it but yeah. it also looks kind of like a tongue like an hr geiger drew a tongue yeah. with hair on it and it's it's gross and it's it's wonderful it's, it's a great job <laughs> so they are sent by maverick oh excuse me they are seen re-entering that sunken sub by maverick who he goes and does the thing where like you were saying ruben pretty easily kills a whole bunch of wolverines and then maverick uses a bomb to set off the sub's nuclear fusion reactor which is a 
a fusion explosion strong enough to almost knock over that giant kaiju, which seems to be kind of far away. But yeah. Maverick himself, who like moments ahead of that just swam out of the sub, he's fine. <laughs> and I looked up like Maverick's powers, and as best as I can tell, he lost his powers in M-Day, and I don't think he's gotten them back. Yeah, that's so great. So he should be just a regular old, you know, pretty strong, tough army dude. Well, this is 80s. 80s superhero stuff, right? I guess. Like, you've got the big-ass explosion as you walk away looking cool. That's what we're doing right uh, he, here. Yeah, he, if, if it's cool, it works, and yeah, Maverick's one, one <laughs> super cool dude, I guess. Uh, so we get a data page now that's a transcription of a conversation between subordinate beasts. Prime Beast has put these singing sewn bugs everywhere throughout the kaiju. He doesn't even trust himself, which is justifiable. This conversation shows the beast reacting to the loss of one of their number because that that beast who was sent on the away team, he he got himself blowed up. And these beasts don't like that. Uh, They start to kind of feel around the idea of plotting among themselves against Prime Beast. And I, I really like this page. It does feel like something that would exist in this world, which is always what I want to see in a data page. Yeah. Do you like that too? Uh, this is good. Good stuff. Uh, so now we pop over to Krakoa to learn that Jeff Bannister and his daughter Maddie, both gravely injured in issue 30 in, in separate kind of attacks linked to Beast, they're, they're now both just fine. So that's nice. Uh, I know that Jeff is drawn to look like Jeff Bridges in the Big Lebowski, but in this issue, I can't help but hear all his dialogue in the voice of Keanu Reeves circa Point Break. Uh, I'm not going to give you my Keanu impression. You want to have <laughs> some listeners. That. <laughs> you know, stick around, but you should go back and read it to yourselves and, and do do your own best Keanu, and I, I think it works. Oh, man. We get more listeners if you did that. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe on a special Patreon-only show, we'll do my okay. Keanu impression. Okay. Okay. Uh, cut to a Maverick safe house on a desolate rock off the coast of Greenland. He puts the clone Wolverine into a cell. Uh, this is where the clone kind of seems dead, but now coughs up some seawater and is fine. And this is also the part where the clone tries to cut its way out through some bars and, and doesn't, which is raises that question about his claws. Wolverine shows up now. <laughs> actual Wolverine Logan. They're not even shiny bars. This is like no. cheap-ass cheap steel. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So the, the real Logan shows up. How exactly he knew how to get to this exact spot? Whatever. He knows Maverick. He could know where he wanted to go, maybe. Yeah. Uh, they fight briefly, but quickly realize there's not that many pages left in this issue. So they realize they have a common enemy and bond over some brewskis. And there's a really weird panel where they're opening beers. Yeah, and the beers. The like beers are geysers up. out. Yeah, it's, it's odd. It's just very, very strange. That one was weird to me. I was like, "What? How do you open a beer to make it so carbonated that it just like rockets?" Yeah, they're holding it at waist length, and the beer goes over their heads. Uh, yeah, possibly suggestive, but. Uh, yeah. Certainly not the last time we're going to talk about something like that this episode. So anyway, they're they're working together now against you know Beast and his kaiju stuff. So yeah, so they don't even think about hey, let's cut the vine off this Logan's neck and see what happens. They can see he's got this glowy Krakoan vine. Yeah. No one says hey, this is exactly what happened to you, Logan. You were freed from it. Let's free this other one from you because he's kind of like you. But instead, Wolverine just takes his own claws, which do have adamantium on them, and stabs his clone through the chest, I think actually killing him. Which, again, should not kill a real Wolverine, right? He can, now that'll, you know, give him a bad Regen, day. Right? Yeah. But 
he should be able to regenerate. But I, I guess for plot reasons, he this did. one can't do that. He did. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they do talk about that with, uh, what does it say? Uh, uh, Wolverine says of Beast, he hasn't quite mastered the formula for making Wolverines, but this Logan was born from that formula. I, I, I guess not. I guess this Wolverine was actually regenerated by the five. Right, he's yeah, yeah. just interrupted it with the vine, so maybe that's where the the thing is. But this beast, the current beast in the kaiju, was created with beast methods, as were all the other beasts on his kaiju. Yeah, I'm a little confused about beasts' resurrection technology. Yes, and how easily he can do it without having the five, which we were always told was like the secret sauce needed to do it the right way. And when it when it needs to be, it's not quite right, and other times it's completely perfect. So I, again, I think we're both thinking harder about this than Ben Percy wants us to. Yeah, maybe and harder than Ben like, Percy did. We've always had clones, right? With Sinister, he does the clones, right? But they're never quite as good as the real people. And I always felt like maybe the real key thing was, yeah, you can make a clone, but it doesn't have like the memories and personality and all that, right? And that's what the five gives you. That, that's but, true. So how did but how did this beast? get all of Beast's memory back. I guess he had, he had access to Cerebro technology. He has the Cerebro sword, yeah. which is and another thing I'm confused Remember about. Remember they said something like he took a copy with him when he fled Krakoa? Right. But still, I would assume it's only... But then he should only... be able to use that for these Logans? Maybe he just chooses yeah. not to? Where he only copied himself for some reason. I, I don't know. Anyway, so they don't do the experiment of cutting the vine off this uh, Wolverine's neck. Uh, no, they, they just kill him. decide to kill it, so they don't want multiple Wolverines. And then Logan and Maverick share a manly Predator-style handshake and set out to take <laughs> revenge. I always love the Predator handshakes. <laughs> that can't get enough of them. Uh, so next, we check in with Beast again. Despite the setback with the sub, he's continued to advance what he thinks are Krakoa's best interests. This time, he does it by blowing up a load of regular non-Krakoan medicine heading for England. Now, England is still not really friends with Krakoa. I yeah. think the coven Akaba is still a thing. Yeah. I think we're still reading the Betsy Britain book. I don't know if that's still a plot point. But anyway, I'm just going to assume pals. it is, yeah, that they're kind of influencing the government. So Beast thinks that the way to drive England back into the arms of Krakoa is to destroy medicine meant for diabetics and cancer patients. You know, folks, I don't think we're supposed to think this Beast is a good guy. I just, <laughs> I get that feeling. We get another clue that yeah. the subordinate beasts are feeling restless. And another reminder of the vital importance of the Cerebro Sword that Beast took with him when he left Krakoa. Last issue, Beast called it our strength, excuse me, our source of strength and knowledge, but also my greatest vulnerability. He doesn't say I'm foreshadowing here, but he might as well have. <laughs> uh, and again, this brings up a confusion I've had for literally years now, dating back to you know, before you joined the podcast room, but I would talk about this with Chris. What is the deal with the Cerebro Sword? What can it do? As far as I know, it was just the Cerebro helmet that Professor X was wearing at the very beginning of Dawn of X. He was he killed shot. by the Xeno Mercs yep. at the end of X-Force number one, yeah. but it was broken. And Magneto uses Magneto powers to squish it into the shape of a sword, like a like a talisman, like a reminder, like a relic. So it shouldn't do anything. It's a broken computer. What does it do? I always thought it was just like, hey, here's this thing that you died in as a reminder that we're all mortal, right? Right. And like you can you have it like sort of Damocles, put it above your bed. Like, always remember this is dangerous times, right? But somewhere between 
that and today it now is like a fully functional cerebro helmet i assume it's like i mean the only thing this is the story i've told myself and it's certainly not been clarified in the comics is basically anything i got yeah i'm I'm assuming it's like an off the network version of the cerebro helmet so it's got all the backups but it's you know as of some date plus whatever he records into it now so presumably this would be how he has given himself his own krakoa resurrection Okay. Memory protocol type thing, right? So that if he dies, his, he can be rebooted from the sword. That but, works because one of the other beasts says, as long as he has a Cerebro sword, we are disposable to him, meaning he can he can make more. So I think that fits together. Now, exactly when that happens, and if any other writer thinks the Cerebro sword works like that, I, I don't know. And you would think that a key plot point like that would actually be spelled out on the pages instead of just left to our assumptions. It's going to turn out that it's like a mystical power blade, right? (laughs) That, that, you know, my whole theory that I've created. Technology to something magical, which I know Krakoa is kind of in that gray area. Yeah. But still, it's a broken computer. Yeah. It's it's one of those key things that should just be tight, you know, that they they really need to spell it out. It's something that I don't know. Maybe it's just Ben Percy just thinks we all understand it. He thinks it's been explained somewhere else and no one else bothered to tell us about it. Yeah. Anyway, before the subordinate beast can do anything to, you know, get the Cerebro Sword, Beast has already sniffed out their mutinous plans and has them all slaughtered to death by Wolverines. Oh well, so much for that plot thread. But Beast is at least temporarily without subordinate beasts. Uh, will that be important to the next issue? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, and that is one point for Beast as a more effective evil genius than Mr. Sinister, who allowed his clones to get the better of him. So, yeah. one point Beast. All right, to finish up this story, I thought we'd get through this quicker, but I, I get us bag- bogged down on things. That's all right. Uh, we see two separate attempts to go after Beast. We have CIA agent Jeff Bannister leading a squad of U.S. military dudes. Is that how the CIA works? I don't know. Let's <laughs> let's say yes. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Maybe they launch coups in all sorts of other countries. I've heard that too on the internet. I don't. Yes. I don't even know. I'm fine with it. But he's he's like actively leading the raid. Meanwhile, Logan and Maverick are in the same vicinity, heading out after Beast in a speedboat. In our final cliffhanging panel, the military dudes see speedboat Logan, and mistaking him for one of the clones, I mean, he is a clone, but one of the other clones, how do they know about the clones? Anyway, they're about to blow up Logan, and that's that's where we're at. Again, uh, more action over any kind of a deep plot. The art continues to be good, without quite so many wow pages as last issue, where I really gushed about the art. Uh, again, the Krakoan submarine shuttlecraft coming out of the kaiju chest was was primo. This arc will be continuing for two more issues, so there is time to tighten up the, the plotting and Cerebro sword stuff if Ben Percy feels like it. I suspect he won't feel like it, but it's a fun enough issue to read. With all these X-Tiles flying around with deep, complicated backstories, it's fine to have one that is just straightforward action and might as well have that title be Wolverine. I think you're probably in the same kind of boat. That's exactly it. I'm actually, like I said, I'm not a huge Wolverine fan, but I'm enjoying this story because it's kind of goofy and the art is fun. So I I would give this a seven. It's not like I feel like you have to read this, but if you're so inclined to just have a goofy, fun, weird story, like this is worth reading. Yeah, I'm at a a seven and a half, so really similarly. Uh, I will mention there is a short backup story by Gene Luen Yang telling of an adventure Logan has co-starring Sister Dagger from the Shang-Chi book. It, it, that's fine. It does try to tie into the Xeno manslaughter storyline from X-Force issues 21 and 22, which is an odd thing to call back to. 
Now, I know Jim is a big fan of Sister Dagger, and if you are too, you'll probably want to check out this backup. For me, it was it was fine. It was just okay. It didn't really affect my score one way or the other, but you should know about it. Yeah, it was cool. Art That's is cool it. indeed. Okay, so that was Wolverine. Now on to our final book of the episode, X-Men Red number 11, A Storm on the Horizon. This is the first issue of X-Men Red after it kind of went on hiatus for a while to be Storm and the Brotherhood during Sins of Sinister. It is written, of course, by Al Ewing, art by Stefano Caselli and Jacopo Camagni. Although Camagni's left off the cover, I guess Caselli's left off the color cover for some reason. I don't know who drew what. I'm, I can't tell the difference. I, I'm not affiliated enough with their, their styles. Colors are by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Mayer, design by Tom Muller. Just Tom Muller. I, I, I got to stop here and ask, Jay Bowen gets a design credit, like with Jay Bowen, like all the other X books, but never on X-Men Red. And I just wonder, you know, what did he do that is being used in the other books, but not this book? Or is he just <laughs> left off all the time by mistake and they always copy paste the same thing? Interesting. Complete idle curiosity, just because I write down these credits every week. Yeah. And it's always Tom Muller with Jay Bowen, except at X-Men Red. Yeah. So if anyone out there, if... If Tom Muller or Jay Bowen happen to be listeners to this podcast, just let me know and tell me what's going on. It's just complete idle curiosity. So I like it. To speak about the actual book, instead of minutia like that, uh, you may recall last week there was a small time skip towards the end of Immortal number 11. Storm had left Krakoa for Arako, and we get a caption saying, days later, and then we see her return to Krakoa and give her proxy vote to Colossus. This issue of X-Men Red takes place during those days later. And what did Storm do on Mars during those days later? She had conversations. Two of them. And we see both of them in intricate detail. There's also a B-plot involving some other characters, and I I found that B-plot more interesting myself. But we're going to start off with Storm. So her first conversation, she's on a first date with Craig Marshall, that NASA dirt scientist that Al Ewing first showed us in X-Men Red number six. Remember, he was protecting two Iraqi kids during the uh, Oranos attack. It's not clear how Craig scores this date with the Queen of Mars. I don't know if there's an Iraqi version of Tinder, but hey, hey good for him. <laughs> uh, St- Storm shows up to this first date pretty much naked from the waist up, other than electricity around her you know, chest area. And also, she's got on the biggest, most dangerous-looking pair of earrings I have ever seen in my life. You, you turn too quickly, and a waiter is going to lose an eye. It is seriously big earrings. Uh, their conversation is just kind of, you know, chit-chat. Other than Storm mentioning that Abigail Brand is missing, no one seems to know where she went. Now, we know that when Brand body slid by one in X-Men Red number 10, which is somehow just one issue prior to this, depending on how you count it, it seems like forever ago, but Brand ended up in a place labeled somewhere very secret. That's, that's literally what the caption said. Somewhere very secret, where the Fisher King was waiting and somehow called her by her secret, unknown to anybody else, real name, Abigail Thanriagwiaxis. So this is Ewing keeping alive the idea that Abigail Brand is still out there. He hasn't forgotten her. I do hope we see what happens to her pretty soon. Now, before Storm and Craig can have dessert, Storm is called away by the psychically projected head of Charles Xavier, who now, of all times, finally wants to talk about what happened to Magneto. Uh, now, we might remember last issue, or not last issue, last, is- last week in Immortal, there was that weird clunky line about before Storm left Krakoa. Hey, hey, Charles, you want to talk about Magneto? Nah, some other time. Now he wants to talk about it. Really weird. You know, just, just clumsy 
it, it seems like it was meant to be nice and neat fitting together, but just feels more clunky than anything else. So on to Storm's second conversation. She puts on some more clothes, but keeps on those big earrings. I don't know why I'm obsessed with earrings this week, but apparently that's my thing. Uh, she heads back to Krakoa to have a chat with Chuck. This is a less friendly conversation with Charles demanding to know Magneto's last words and Storm saying, Storm saying she ain't going to tell him. Charles doesn't come off too well in this scene with that original meeting between him and Storm, giant size number one, of course, recasted away most unflattering Professor X. Charles gets super PO'd here and decides he's just going to invade Storm's memory by force. Storm, who, remember, she's immune, who has the power to command weather, and somehow repels the psychic attack of Charles Xavier, the most potent psychic on planet Earth. And, and I, I don't buy this. This is was my uh, my opening joke of the podcast. Ruben, can you convince me why it's at all possible that <laughs> Storm is so super amazing, wonderful, you know, omnipotent that she yeah. can fight off Charles Xavier's mental attack? Yeah. He fights Eternals. He fights psychic Eternals. But weather lady, uh, he, he taught too much. her and everybody else to resist. I feel like I, I feel like didn't this um, happen in Sins of Sinister where somebody's like, oh, I was trained to resist him. It was and repel him, the, and this, then he basically is just like triangle was mentioned. Yeah, and then he's like, just completely overpowers him. He's like, you idiot! Like, no, you can't actually resist me. So that pissed me off. And this is just more of the like Storm's invincible stuff that yeah. we've seen lately, which sucks. I I really hate the like overpowered storm plot line that we've seen lately and i'm beginning to kind of hate her as a character i i like a lot of aluin's writing but yeah he's just his version of storm is just too perfect to be an interesting character yeah she's just very self self-absorbed and it pisses me off i'm like even back to the whole like you know what happened when she was first brought onto the the team thing where she was like told she's not a goddess and she's like pissed off that he took her out of that and he's like, hey, I, you know, how many, you know, times have you saved the Earth because you participated? Like, all those are really good points. And I know Charles is is viewed as awful because he's just, you know, invading her personal space with his powers. That mm-hmm. part, yeah, that sucks, right? He's a jerk. But I kind of agree with him with everything else, right? Before he decided to try to take her thoughts from her. Like, you're not a fucking goddess. I'm sorry. You never were. And I know that's going to piss off a lot of Storm fans. Just a fans. strong mutant. Really strong mutant, but not yeah. actually a goddess. And you did some good stuff for the village you were defending, right? Like, I can get that, right? But it seems to be like she's just PO'd that he told her that she wasn't a goddess, but she is. I, I don't know. It just pisses me off. There's I'm a like, difference in the writing. Like, when Kieran Gillen writes about Storm, you can see that, yes, she is really powerful, but she's also flawed, and he takes criticisms of storm seriously where in this book any criticism of storm is supposed to be viewed by the readers as just nonsense like oh charles xavier he's wrong about everything storm is right about everything where the the gillen version has a little more nuance to it which i enjoy yeah Yeah. okay so charles then wallows in self-pity for a few pages after getting (laughs) ass spanked by uh by storm here yeah Uh, he kind of laments the bargain that brought mr sinister onto rakoa laments that he's the only one left of the three founders of Krakoa, the other two being Magneto, who's dead, and Moira, who's, you know, evil robot Moira. Uh, Storm now basically tells Charge that he's right to be so hard on himself, and then tells him to keep his bald ass the hell off her planet. Not in those exact words, but awfully close. So yeah, Charles yeah. is not not welcome on Araco anymore. Yeah, she's like, the other thing that's weird here, too, that threw me off is when Charles was talking to her about it, 
you know, he brings up Eric and then she's like, he's Max, not Eric. And then he's like, oh, yeah, it's it's weird. The language there, it's just, like dialogue was bizarre. The, the names who, like, and there's, there's another scene where, uh, where was this from? Where Charles kind of admits he really, maybe it was this situation. He, he didn't really know Eric or he only knew Magneto. But I don't yeah. think that's really true because they did, in a whole bunch of issues, have some real times together. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So that's enough of the, the, the storm thing here. Uh, did it really move any kind of plot forward except for they had an argument, storm one, and I guess that is partly why storm at the end of immortal X-Men number 11 felt like, yeah, I got to spend most of my time on Mars now. Hey, Colossus. You're going to have to be my eyes, ears, and vote here. I will applaud the artist that drew the Storm dinner date dress. So basically, <laughs> the dress is, and not for the reasons you're, you're chuckling about. Yes, it's kind of revealing. But the it's basically like a bunch of electrical bolts like across her dress slash chest, like covering mm-hmm. bits that you would want to cover in a comic. But I was like, man, you think about the Spider-Man costume being like such a pain in the ass to draw. I was like, drawing that dress repeatedly would be a nightmare, right? Assuming... As I looked at it, I'm like, is this moving, right? Are these bolts, like, of electricity moving? But I'm assuming it's a static dress, right? With just Static, weaving. I get it, because electricity. And, oh, yes, well, I'm, I'm, I think it's probably, I'm picturing, like, uh, ever seen, like, one of those plasma balls with the electrical bolts kind of moving around? I'm picturing it like that, and also that's why the artist doesn't necessarily need to have it the same every time, because it's moving around. So that's a great excuse. But it looks, but yeah, it it looks it does very look cool. intricate, and I was like, man, that'd be really hard to draw that. So kudos to that art. But again, a, a bold choice for a, a first date and, <laughs> and sending a signal is all well, I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, she's she's bold. So <laughs> I, I, I'm okay with Storm being I'm all that, right? She's been a supermodel. She's been a topless goddess in Africa. Like, I don't think she cares that much. I mean, the whole Claremont run, she the whole joke running joke was like, she just walk around naked and everyone would be like, holy crap. <laughs> and she's like, what? So it, that, it does that work great fine. with the, the, her old weather theme. The way her hair is drawn looks like a, a fog bank rolling in. Yeah. Her, her flowing gray dress looks like clouds. The the, the electricity. It, it looks yeah. really nice. It's just yeah. I, I thought it was worthwhile mentioning the choice. Also, hey, an excuse to look at that dress some more. So why not? Okay, so that's storm stuff. Over in the B plot, uh, we see Bobby at Sunspot. Also, Nova and an Iraqi mutant named Kobach never held. And if you saw him, you'd know why all hanging out naked in an Iraqi hot spring. Well, Nova is still wearing his helmet, so the Nova Force doesn't overload his brain or something. But other than that, we're told they're all buck naked. And I'm going to pause here to discuss the art some more. Now, these three characters are pictured sitting chest deep chest deep in steaming green water. But the artist, and again, I don't know which artist it is of the two of them, likes to show the characters with one bent knee poking just above yes. the surface, which is fine. I mean, you might sit like that in a hot tub. Yeah, But several panels in a row show these knees positioned in a way that makes them suggest, and not just knees, if you know what I mean, kind of like waist high, just right in front yes. of the, the gentleman yes. there. I certainly laughed. I thought it was hilarious. It's did, just you, like did you think very... that before I happened to mention it to you? I don't know how I would have thought about this if I had just- Before I poisoned your mind. Yeah, but once you posted it, especially that one scene with the guy standing there, and there's a knee, and- then he's like, don't forget me. And then everyone's like, yeah, I'm never going to forget you. <laughs> yeah, that's the one with uh, Kobach. He's standing yeah. up to leave. So we see him from behind with his, you know, a rocky buns right there. And he's arching his back. So it's like hips pointing forward. And Bobby's knee is poking out in front of him like they're all really happy to see each other. Yes. And, and that panel looks like it. I think, like I said in the, the DM or on Slack said, 
It looks like it came straight out of a Savage Dragon book. It's yes. just it's pretty hilarious. It's pretty pretty, pretty funny. A cheeky joke by the artist. Yeah, uh, yeah. There it is. Uh, so we get some exposition here on Arako political maneuvering. Remember that their great ring is all busted up after Oranos attack, which we're reminded, you know, to us that seems a long time ago, a whole sins of Sinatra event, but to them it's it's still really recent. So they have to rebuild their whole governmental structure. Kobak will be battling Calderac in the Circle Perilous to fight for the seat of victory. Uh, Kobak, this character we see here with the spines on him, he fought Storm for her seat on the ring and lost to her. But he hopes for, you know, better result this time. And we learned that another Iraqi mutant called Lycaon has already won the seat of stalemate. We haven't seen this mutant yet, but Bobby describes him as imagine an Omega Wolverine and then double it, which sounds like foreshadowing to me. <laughs> we're we're going to see him pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So at this point, there's a big old blast of pink light in the sky coming from over where the external gate is located. Do you remember the external gate? I do. Connects to Otherworld. Yep. Yeah, this is the gate that was between Krakoa and Otherworld. It was created by Apocalypse. He killed uh, a bunch of externals, which are these super powerful, super old mutants, and used their magically charged up bones to make this, this gate to go to Otherworld. And that's what kicked off the whole X of Tens event. Yes. So anything going on with that gate feels like capital letters, big news. So Bobby and Nova head over to that gate just in time for there to be another blast, one that knocks the two back and unties Bobby's robe so that he moons the readers. <laughs> Again, odd artistic this choice is here. extremely thirsty. <laughs> it is. It's like Bobby's skinny old ass right there on panel. It's, it's not drawn big, but, you know, if, if you zoom in on it, and, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, there it is. Uh, it also knocks his sunglasses off, which is kind of funny. You see them fly off in the little picture. And then later on, he, he's not wearing them anymore. So I appreciate the continuity there. Uh, more importantly to the actual plot, though, someone has come through the gate from other work. This someone says, <clears throat> the white sword has fallen and 99 of his champions with him. I am the last. Whoa, that's that's pretty big. The white sword was that guy who would resurrect his 100 champions every morning to head back out and fight the Amenthi demons. So him being dead, you know, resurrection guy. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, the someone goes on. I bring you his legendary weapon, purity, as proof of his last words. And we do see this, this someone holding that very distinctive chunky sword. Tell them, he said, tell them all Genesis is coming. Like, whoa. Yeah. Now that's a really big deal. Genesis, of course, being Apocalypse's wife, the leader of the Iraqi opposition in X of Swords. Apocalypse and Genesis went back to Otherworld together at the end of that event. But, the messenger says Genesis is coming, doesn't mention Apocalypse at all, which is a curious oversight. Now we have It's almost like X of Swords being retold, right? Like it has that very similar, yeah. It does have that I same kind that, of tone I forget to what it. that helmet thing was called, but <laughs> she put it back on. <laughs> She's back oh, to being possessed. Yeah, right. The one that makes you command all the demons but possesses yeah. you, yeah. Yeah. And the messenger is John Ironfire. I'll mention that as well. Oh, I was I was building up to that as a big reveal. Yes, yeah, it okay. is John Ironfire, our pal from Sins of Sinister, Storm, and the Brotherhood in his first main timeline appearance. He does look younger here, which makes sense. He does have his distinctive kind of horns. He has uh, a blade coming out of his wrist because he makes metal out of, out of his blood, so it all fits. So it makes sense that this was clearly one of Ewing's favorite characters he made up for Sinister Sinister. 
So he's going to want him be around some more. His pants make me laugh. Looks like they're pants make me laugh. Yeah, it looks like they're unbuckled, but he's got a belt (laughs) holding them on. It's really bizarre. (laughs) It it does look like, you know, Al Bundy's sitting on the couch watching football and kind of unbuckles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre little character design. I I did enjoy learning that he had been one of White Sword's 100 champions. So that was a group we'd heard of. But if we saw him in the background, maybe we could retrospectively say, retroactively say that, yeah, maybe he was in the background of uh, X of Swords at one point. It made me also think like Gorgon was a total badass because remember he fought like a good chunk of the 100 swords. He was the one who got all those points back so we could get, we could get to a tie at the end arbitrarily. Uh, And I, yeah, we have heard uh, of something called the Genesis War, uh, right? We heard mostly about that in Sins of Sinister, like recalling back to something that happened in the past. So the idea that Genesis is coming seems like maybe we're going towards the Genesis War. And I think in Sins of Sinister, Ironfire himself referred back to regretting having killed someone in particular in the Genesis War. So I think, again, that was... Is it foreshadowing that happened in a different alternate future? I guess for us it's foreshadowing because we haven't seen it yet. So some some really cool hints here. And this, again, this is clearly the B plot, but it gives us our our very cool cliffhanger. So to to wrap up, as mentioned, I don't care for the way Al Ewing writes Storm. Too perfect. Uh, In Sins of Sinister, she cast a spell teleporting an entire star system to the edge of the galaxy. Here she overpowers Professor X on Psychic Battle. And recontextualizing Storm Professor X's backstory doesn't really appeal to me. Uh, there is that one kind of cool page that reuses a bunch of old, like, Bronze Age Charles and Storm panels from the 70s and 80s. I kind of like that page. But for me, the what this issue is about that I'm going to remember is that big reveal in those last two pages. Which is cool, but two pages don't rescue a whole issue. The art looks good. I mean, again, those little suggestive things. Okay, it's kind of funny. I, I, ha ha, I got it. Moving on. Uh, another return from the Sins of Sinister timeline. You know, I don't know for whatever reason, when we're coming back from that timeline and getting our first issues from all those books, they, they don't really hit me the way they used to. So I'm going to give this, oh, six out of 10, I guess. Two, yeah. two really I'm cool little, pages. John Ironfire, nice to see. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm a little more positive. I'll give it a seven. Um, you know, just feels like more of the same, right? It's continuous. Sure. I almost, I almost feel like all of these return issues are just sort of like the writers are like, okay, let's assume people didn't read Sons of Sinister, and we have to like give a storyline or enough of a storyline for those readers, right? But we did. Perhaps, so to us, it feels like nothing is someone- moving. I can't imagine someone jumping in at this point. It just doesn't make any sense, especially with, you know, the online services where it's so easy yeah. to get caught up yeah. that it seems unnecessary. But it, it is true that a lot of the books feel at the same time like they're racing to tie up loose ends and also kind of like we're in a holding pattern until Fall of X really happens. Hellfire Gala, yeah. Hellfire Gala. So maybe that's what's kind of slowing things down a little bit. But- this is this is a, a huge moment. I mean, this is calling back to the the very first event after Hoxpox. So anything involving Genesis, possibly Apocalypse coming back, and we know from pro- previews that you know Apocalypse is coming back. So yeah, this that's pretty cool. So that was this week's issues. Looking forward next week, it looks like there's really only two books that we're going to need to cover. So that'll be a little bit of a break for us. Those two are X Men number twenty one. Now it's a big Orcus cover. Uh, including Dr. Stasis is there, Nimrod, Modok, and Omega Sentinel. I really want to see hear more of her story because she's a cool yeah. character. 
yeah. very timey-wimey future loopy stuff about her. Yep. Uh, and maybe we'll hear more about the plans they'll be carrying out related to the Hellfire Gala and Captain Krakoa. So that should be fun. And the other issue next week is X-Force number 40, where I'm really hoping to learn what the heck is up with old man Kid Omega. So those should be fun. Sound like a good time to you, Ruben? Yep. Let's do it. Awesome. So until then, uh, I forget. What is it that we say at the end of every show? Yeah, read more X-Men comics. There's a whole lot of them. Bye-bye.